to episode 14 of HokuCast, your local podcast sponsored by the Howard County Library System. We are Abby, Mikhail, Rima, Ronan, and Taylor, bringing you local Howard County happenings from author interviews to recommended reads. Hi, everyone. My name is May Kepler, and I'm the assistant manager of the Miller branch of the Howard County Library System. I'm so excited to be introducing our guest for today. Our Eric Thomas is a Baltimore-born, best-selling author, playwright, and screenwriter. His books include Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, a Read with Jenna book club pick featured on today, and Reclaiming Her Time, a biography of Maxine Waters, and of course, his upcoming book, Kings of Beemore. He has written for Apple TV's Dinkinson and FX's Better Things, and is currently developing his own television projects. I was head over heels for his first book and laughed and cried right along with the audiobook. I had the pleasure of interviewing him at last year's Maryland Library Association conference and hearing about and learning his inspirations and passions, his life experiences, and of course, his love of libraries. In April, I saw his hilarious and heartfelt play, The Folks at Home at Baltimore Center Stage. I absolutely cannot wait for his next play and of course, his upcoming book, Kings of Beemore. So I'll try to keep my personal fanfare at a minimum now and introduce you to our very special guest, R. Eric Thomas. Okay, so hello, Mr. Thomas. Um, I guess we'll be starting today. So our first question is, how does writing for teens differ from writing your previous work? Well, you know, it's this is it's a great question, um, and uh, it's honestly pretty similar. Um, you know, this is the first novel I've written, and so like there's there's differences for me between novel and my other books, uh, which one is a memoir and one is uh, a, a biography of a congresswoman. Um, but for me, like every book is ultimately about um, uh, uh, about heart and about um, uh, you know an internal journey for characters. I think one of the things that is um, that I thought about a lot while working on Kings of Beemore um, was uh, acknowledging sort of the emotional um, reality of the characters and uh, like uh, and you know sort of recalling where I was as a teen and making sure that I didn't ever put anything into the, the book that was a, an adult's perspective. There are adults in the book, but um, it was very, it was very important that I never sort of wink at the, the reader and say, we all know that, that this feeling is only temporary, you know, or we all know that this thing will change because then it's sort of, I think it makes their the stakes of the book and, and the sort of the big question of the book is, you know, are these two are these two uh, 16-year-olds going to be able to remain friends after one of them moves away? Um, and it, it, if I'm winking at the, 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 the reader and saying like, well, you know, uh, I think everything will work out fine, then it, um, it doesn't do them any, uh, it does them a disservice. And I think it does the reader a disservice. So I think the biggest difference for me is like, really making sure I take everything that the characters are feeling super seriously, because that's what I wanted when I was a teen. Um, that's what I want now, you know, to be taken seriously. But I think a lot of times for teens, especially teen readers, I think we don't, we don't take uh, teens as seriously as we should. And so I, even while writing a comedic novel, I wanted to make sure that every reader who picked this book up knew that I took these characters seriously and I took the readers seriously. So that's kind of the biggest difference. Um, yeah, and also just sort of like, <laughs> because it's set in the present, um, actually it's set like maybe like maybe a year from now. Um, 
uh, I, I needed to get out sort of from under the, the umbrella of the pandemic. And so I was like, it's set a little bit in the future. Um, and, but I, uh, I also was like, you know, I had to talk to a lot of um, teens who I sort of know in, in, in life and sort of ask like little basic, like elementary questions, like how do you communicate with your friends? Like really felt like I was like coming out of a cave. Like I was like Rip Van Winkle, I've been asleep for a hundred years. I'm like, do you DM? What is, uh, what do you do if you want to like call someone? Is, is um, dope, is dope still a thing? Do people dope? still say lit? Oh yeah, oh, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh my goodness. And so like, I really, like one of the things you, you can't like, it's always a trap to put slang into a book because the minute it gets printed, it's like, this is an ancient tome. This is the Iliad. It doesn't exist anymore. So I was like, okay, there's no slang in here. Um, they just they just talk to each other. That's fine. And there's not really that many apps. And the good thing about the book is that they have to get rid of their phones pretty early on because their parents are using a location tracking app to, to, to follow them and they don't want to be followed. Um, and so getting rid of the phones, I was like, ha, ha, ha. I've tricked everyone into thinking that I, I'm cool and I know how things work. But also, like, I also know that, like, as much as people are communicating with, you know, over DMs or, you know, on various apps, they're also communicating face to face. But yeah, that was that was very hard to be like, OK, so if I were 20 some years younger, how would I go get a sandwich like just like I'm like Eric they're human people they go get sandwiches just like everybody else so yeah it was coming you know it was remembering that I am 9,000 years old uh that was the hardest part <laughs> that's great yeah and and we can definitely see um I started reading the advanced reading copy and um you can definitely see sort of the adults not taking uh the kids seriously within the plot itself which is um an interesting feature um, so the next question is, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Oh, I, I think I always knew. I was a really avid reader, uh, even before I could read, you know, we would go to the, the um, Baltimore uh, City Public Library, the Enoch Pratt Library or the Baltimore County Public Library, um, my mother and I, and we would, I would insist that we got the, as many books as they would let us take. So we'd always bar up to the limit. So we'd go home with like 30, I think was the limit. Um, children's books and I'm like three years old and I demand that like we read them all and my mother's like excuse me like you get out of here and she would she would read them all to me um, and then we go through them and then we return them and I get 30 more and that practice continued for like my entire life it's, you know like today you know I'm, I'm, I'm calling into you from Pittsburgh and where I'm doing some work and research and I went to a library and I was like you can't borrow anything because you're leaving tomorrow I was like but I want to just like hang out and look a little bit so I was really, I was really uh, enamored with books and with writing and with story always. And I think as soon as I learned how to read and learned how to write, that was sort of a wrap for me. That was all I wanted to do. Um, yeah, and I didn't sort of know that I was allowed to. I like write little stories throughout elementary school and, and middle school. And I didn't really know I was allowed to until I got to high school and I took a a fiction writing class. I think I was in my senior year. And people, their responses were really good. People said, You're, these, these are good stories. And I don't know, you know, I don't know, maybe you have this experience, like, sometimes you feel like you need permission to do something, um, even though nobody is stopping you. But you sort of, like, the feeling of like, oh, I just do this thing. This is just my hobby, or this is just something I like. 
kind of changes if somebody else is like, oh, I, uh, I, I see you. I acknowledge that, that you are, are doing something. Um, and so that was really influential to me. I really appreciated that. Can I just say, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I wanted to thank you for your effort in trying to connect with your younger, uh, uh, sorry, younger audience. Um, whenever I read something or whenever I go into a piece of media, it always feels really wrong whenever mm. the older people try to connect, but it feels so not authentic. So thank you so much for your effort for doing that. And on your topic of growing up and um, being an adolescent, so how did growing up in Baltimore influence your writing? Well, I mean, well, one, I appreciate, thank you for, for um, thank you for thanking me. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, um, I think, well, one, yeah, I, I, I read a lot of things and I, I come across a lot of, you know, even like television programs that are geared toward younger audiences. And I'm just like, do they think that these, these, these teenagers are, three years old or do they think they're from space and it's like let's just treat people like humans you know and that's I mean that's and I think that connects to the question actually because I always felt and I wrote about this in my my memoir a little bit I always felt I felt like Baltimore was like a city of, of bubbles and I always felt like I was sort of separated from other other parts of a community I felt like I was not black enough or I was too black depending on the space I sort of had this idea that I was gay and and so, I, but I also had this idea that like it was that was uh, troublesome or, or problematic. Um, I didn't feel I you know I went to this private school where I didn't have enough I didn't have money like the rest of my classmates did. I grew up in a very poor neighborhood, and so I was always just sort of felt like other. And so I think that idea of always sort of kind of trying being on the outside or the margins and trying to figure out how to be in the center of my own life and, and, and perhaps in the center of, of other communities really gave me an empathetic uh, motivation as a writer and, and, um, and a desire to create community on the page um, and a desire to create um, experiences for readers and for characters where they're seen as human first as opposed to whatever makes them different or whatever makes them other. And so I think that, that and even Baltimore, Baltimore feels like a very much an underdog city. Um, it's always kind of becoming. And I think that really influenced, I think if I, I don't know, who knows, if I grew up in New York City, I don't know, maybe I'd be a, like a, a cool software engineer. I don't know what I'd be. Um, but like, I think growing up in a city where I'm like, I don't think people get it. You know, if you're not from here or you're not from Maryland, you sort of don't, you don't get it. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way about their hometowns. And I think a lot of people are right. But like the desire to say like, I, I would like to share with you the truth um, as I see it really influenced me uh, and motivated me as a writer. Yeah, I can see how the, the geographical aspect would play into it and, and sort of how the culture of one area does um, affect it. Um, so now we're gonna shift a bit away from your personal life um, and we're going to go to your news article, um, Eric Reads the News on L.com. So when you did write for this, how did you formulate jokes for your articles? Um, that's a really good question that I don't actually have a very good answer to. I sort of, uh, I would drink a lot of coffee and um, I would uh, read, you know, the, the premise of the, the column was for four years from 2016 until 2020, 
I, you know, I wrote a daily column commenting humorously on news, uh, pop culture, and politics. And so I sort of drink a lot of coffee, get on Twitter, and figure out what we were talking about that day, or what was ridiculous, or what had sort of happened. And then, I, you know, pick a story, or sometimes it was just picking an image, like look at this this photo of of, uh, of Barack Obama. This is a, this you know, there's something funny in here. And then I would just sort of, I literally would just kind of like, like meditate on it. It sounds deranged, but like, I would just sort of be like, okay, what's, what's every possible angle of this? You know what it is? It feels, you know, it felt very much like, maybe you've read Cyrano de Bergerac in school or for pleasure. I read Cyrano, um, it's a play by Edmund uh, Rostand. Uh, and we read it, I think in 10th grade. And there's this one portion, he's the, the you know, the idea of Cyrano is, he has a very long nose and people make fun of him for it. And so this, you know, the, the, uh, his sort of mortal enemy says something like, you have a big nose. And Cyrano's like, that's the best you can come up with. And he goes on this long rant where he's like, these are all the different ways that you can insult my nose. And I found that to be so inspiring. And I always would sort of, you know, I, I, I tried to punch up with my column. I never wanted to make fun of anybody or anything. But I would do the Cyrano treatment and sort of look at these news stories and say like, okay, well, here's a news story about Beyonce performing um, with Ed Sheeran uh, at a concert. And Beyonce is wearing this elaborate dress and Ed Sheeran is wearing a t-shirt and jeans. And I'm like, what's every possible way that I can sort of find something funny in this by commenting on the difference in the way they're dressed and by going, by using hyperbole um, and by sort of saying uh, using simile and thinking like, this is like this. So really just sort of going through a different sort of toolbox of comedic stances. Um, and then, you know, editing the ones out that didn't really work. So yeah, it was, it's a really uh, chaotic process. Um, and it made me very tired uh, for a long time, but it brought me a lot of success. So I don't recommend it. And yes, I, and also I do. So. <laughs> I liked your Cyrano reference. I didn't read the play, but I did watch the recent movie because I'm lazy. <laughs> and I have some critiques of it, but I did enjoy it. Well, did you know they filmed it on an active volcano? What? All that snow. All that snow was just ash. What? That's yeah. That's okay. That I have so many questions about that. It feels like an insurance liability. I also sort of feel like what like if you can film anywhere, maybe not a volcano. Like just just a thought. I don't know. I thought that was so interesting. My dad told me about it. Uh, they couldn't watch the movie, but I went to watch it because they wanted to watch it with me, my parents being they. And gosh, I, the entire time that they were just up on that mountain fighting the war, they were just ash. Yuck. Yeah, you know, they could have gone somewhere, you know, less dangerous, like Canada. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or a soundstage. Just go inside, you know. We, we get it. They were it. all acting so cold and... Oh, and it's just ash? Home. That and it's is just cash. Bonkers. Go to a ski resort. They've got so much snow. It's. I'm sorry. That was really cool to me. And it was <laughs> probably something about the color and the cinematic nature of it. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sorry for that tangent. No, that's great. <laughs> I didn't know that. So back on topic. My bad. Uh, which of the Eric reads the news articles is your favorite? I just want to know this so I can go read it, please. Um, I think I. 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 Oh gosh. I mean, there were there were a lot of. There were a lot of good ones. There were also a lot of ones that I was like, I don't think so today, as is the nature, I think, of, of any kind of work. But I think my favorite is, I did, I, I, the one I mentioned earlier where it's um, uh, Beyonce and Ed Sheeran 
performing. And I think the headline is something like, is Ed Sheeran allowed to dress like this in front of Beyonce or something like that? He shouldn't um, be. I, that, was, that was also my, and like people were like, people would email me like, like it was serious, you know, cause sometimes get picked up by Yahoo or something and people would be like reading their new morning paper and like spit out their coffee. Like, I can't believe someone has said this thing about Ed Sheeran. They were like, insult me. It's so exhausting being a person in the world. And I'm like, folks, friends, this is a very hyperbolic article where I'm like, I'm like, Ed Sheeran should be sent to jail for dressing like this in front of Beyonce. People are like, how dare you? How dare you say Ed Sheeran should, should go to jail? And I'm like, well, you know, we'll see. I'll see you in court. We'll see. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's one of my favorites. There was a, it's funny. There, I think I, I did some of my funniest work writing about the Trump administration, but it was also such a deeply de- depressing time that I'm like, I don't even want to talk. I don't want to think about those, those articles anymore. But the Beyonce one, that was fun. Yeah, that, that, that is great. Um, so now we're shifting away from articles and to television. You've also written for TV shows like Apple TV's Dickinson and FX's Better Things. In your experience, how does TV writing differentiate from playwriting or novel writing? TV writing, um, well, let's see. So playwriting for me feels very organic. If I have an idea, I do a fair amount of research first, um, just to sort of get uh, get a sense of the world and what I'm trying to get to. But then I just sort of like, and I might sort of sketch out like, this is, this, you know, this is the general arc of the play, but I don't do a whole lot of pre-planning. I just sort of sit down and, and vibe, for better or for worse. And novel writing, I do, what a, in novel writing, I do do a, a fair amount of structural planning with Kings of Beemore. I did, I really beat out the structure uh, very clearly. So I knew where I was going because, you know, it's, it's longer. And so therefore you have a, um, uh, you don't want to get off track and you don't want to sort of tangent. But with TV, the thing that like, I think a lot of people don't realize about TV is that it's so precise. And so you have to do so much pre-work before you can actually do the work. Before I got on the call with you, I was working, I'm, I'm writing a new series and I've been working on it for over a year. And all that time, I, I, I haven't written one word of dialogue. It's all been outlines and research and like with tv um and this is true of every show you watch like the inciting incident has to happen at a certain point in the script it's like if it's a half hour comedy it's like two and a half pages in and if it's a hour long it's about six pages in so about six minutes in and you can like you can set your watch by it you know um and maybe it's like six minutes 30 seconds seven whatever but like it's happening on that page and that is true of every single TV show. And at the midpoint, something happens. And, you know, like there's all these like rules about how TV works. And so you can't really break those rules no matter what story you're telling. And so that is very, that's the biggest difference with a play and a novel. There are kind of, there are rules, there are guidelines, but you don't even really have to follow like rising action if you don't want to. I tend to, because I'm like, I get lost otherwise. I'm like, I don't know. Aristotle told me I had to do it. So let's, let's go. But, um, uh, but you can do whatever you want. And uh, yeah, with TV, it's, it's a lot more strict. That's really interesting. Um, you were mentioning a new series. Uh, are you writing the entire series or just one or like a few episodes? Uh, I'm, ideally, I'm writing the entire series. So the way it works now, and I, like, I don't want to be, I, I, I be coy, but like 
it's a series that's in development with a network. And so like the way it works is you pitch it to the network and they say, yeah, we're, okay, we're interested in it. Tell us more. So you can write an outline, they give you notes to the outline. And then they're like, great, you can go write a pilot, uh, which is the first episode. Um, and then if they like that, then they'll film the pilot. And if they like what they see, then they'll order the rest of the series. And then I would write the whole series. So right now I'm at the pilot writing stage. So everything, every part of this process is <laughs> feels very fraught. And it's all like, uh, I hope they like me. I hope they like this ridiculous idea. So yeah, um, but once once those television show is what they call greenlit, the, you know, given the, given the go ahead, then you can hire a team of writers. Um, and that's, that's, I was on the team of writers for Dickinson and Better Things. And you sort of sit in a room for between 10, 14, sometimes 20 weeks. And you just talk all day long about story. And you eventually come up with what the season is. Um, and, and then you start to write the season. So it's a very interesting way of writing because you're all sort of sharing a brain and you're bringing in your life experiences and you're bringing in, you know, and sometimes it's like, we need a joke right here. And so you're, you're just firing up jokes. And sometimes you're like, what is this person, what does this character want? And you all just kind of ruminate all day about what a character wants. It's very fun. Um, it's also very exhausting. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you like, everything's so hard for me. I'm like, I'm living my dream life. Like, you know, <laughs> stop complaining. And um, just lastly, can you tell us what this show is or what it's about? I can tell you what it's about. Um, so it is uh, set, it, it's about a black newspaper um, in the 19, uh, it's based on a, a true uh, story. Um, uh, it's a, about a black newspaper, and it start starts in the nineteen twenty, late nineteen twenties, and it goes. Ideally, it goes through the civil rights movement. And essentially, you, you know, they were in you know in the early part of the twentieth uh, century. Most mainstream newspapers weren't covering any news that had to do with the black population in America, and so a number of newspapers had to be started to cover little, from little things like. There was a burglary, you know, to larger things like when will we get the right to vote or, you know, like, you know, um, and so, I mean, these actually predated, they, some of these newspapers predated the, the Civil War. They were started in the North. And so these newspapers, newspapers were hugely influential. And then after, after the turn of the century, um, a lot of the newspapers started encouraging readers to come up North if they were in the South, um, you know, with stories of a better life up in the North. So these newspapers sort of prompted what's called the Great Migration, uh, which lasted from uh, like the 1920s to about the 1940s. Huge, huge influx of Black residents in northern cities, um, which kind of changed the composition of America. And in so doing, these newspapers, in a lot of ways, created the modern Black citizen and, um, and created modern Black America. And so the series, it's it's kind of like it's kind of a nighttime soap. There's a you know the, the, a lot of these newspapers are covering scandalous stuff and tabloid stuff, and so it's a soap that's also about the creation of an American identity. Um, so hopefully you'll see it on your television screens um, at some point. I have no idea who can control these things. <laughs> I had one question before I asked this one. Uh, it goes back a bit to the structure of the writing. Mm -hmm. um, do some people get to subvert expectations with uh, things like two pages uh, into it is when the, I'm sorry, the what's it called starts. Oh, the and uh, then, inciting incident. Yes. So I guess for a really artsy or fartsy thing, would they be able to 
subvert that, maybe shift it forward, shift it backwards for these things or play with the template? I know this is a stupid question. Obviously they could do that, but. I don't know that, it, I don't think it's a stupid question at all. I, I think for every rule, there is a, a, there's a, 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 a rule that's broken. I have found, I do find that TV really sticks to a formula and that there, there are less, even the sort of more artistic shows like Atlanta, for instance, Atlanta is a pretty artistic show. You watch the pilot of Atlanta, it follows it, you know, you know, like, what is it? Two minutes into the first episode of Atlanta, there's like the altercation in the parking lot and that sort of sets things off in, in motion. So film, it can be a little different. Um, film kind of follows the same kind of rules, but film less so, but yeah, so you can do it. But I think because so many people, television is, is, is ultimately a business and the business only makes money if people watch the show and people, and we are tuned to expect certain things. So sometimes when we're watching a show, we're like, I'm bored or I don't care about this. It's because the formula is not right. Um, and I think the people who make television are very aware of that because ultimately television, spoiler alert, is about selling advertising. And so they're like, well, if we're, if they're bored or the, the formula is not right then the ads don't sell and we don't make money, um, and we got to go back to, you know, to canning tuna fish or whatever people did before, uh, before television. Um, ah, yes. The exactly. large industry before television, <laughs> canning tuna fish. That's what everybody did. It was the biggest industry. In the <laughs> so, yeah, I think so. I think you probably can find shows that deviate a little bit, but uh, I think they're very, very rare. Sorry, just the structure of TV and film behind the scenes and, uh, how writers will subvert or use the expect expectations and requirements just really interests me. But again, yeah. a lot of things interest me. That's not like a special thing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. No, no, sorry. That was great. Uh, now let's find the question. The next question is, uh, what's the best and worst advice you received about writing or being a writer? I think I have a sort of trick question, trick answer for this, because I think the best and worst advice was the, same, was the same advice, which is write what you know. I think it was the best advice because it ultimately I I've taken it to to one motivate me to research when I don't know, you know, things. Um, and so I, I do do a lot of research um, and uh, and also to sort of to write what you know, meaning like write emotional truth. Um, and so it doesn't mean I have to, I'm, I, many of the things that I write about, I haven't experienced, um, but I, if I'm writing emotional truth um, uh, and writing empathetically, I think I'm able to sort of write a wide range of human experiences. But it's also, I think the worst advice because there's also a way of interpreting, right? What you know as, uh, as, as limiting um, and, and, and sort of pushing a writer toward Auto fiction, you know, fiction that's basically, you know, thinly disguised story of your life. Um, and I think it's it kind of as much as you can write, you can be inspired to write uh, by anything. But I think that a writer, it behooves every writer to look outside of their own selves um, uh, for, for story. It makes you better. It makes you bigger. And, you know, sometimes you write things and it's like, oh, this is very sort of similar to, to who I am. And I think that's fine. But I think you always have to sort of be curious. I think, it, I think 
I think there's a way of interpreting right what you know as don't be curious. And I think that is the worst, that's the worst thing you can be as a writer is, is uncurious. People often sort of suspect with both my plays um, and, and now this book that I'm writing characters that are sort of thinly veiled versions of me. And while, you know, Harrison in the book is, is you know, like very obsessed with musical, with theater as, as I am, um, and a, a generally anxious person as I am as well, um, uh, he's not me, you know, and this isn't an experience that I had. And like, there are sort of gifts you can give a character. It's like, oh, we share this trait. I also share traits with, with Linus. Um, I share traits with Aperna, and I share traits with Corinne, and I share traits with, with Harrison's parents. And so I think being curious, setting up a character and saying, this is where, this is what I know about this character. And I'm curious about the other parts that I don't know. That really can help you, um, uh, can help drive you as a, as a, as a writer. Um, and I think makes sure, make sure, makes your writing better. So you'd say, you'd say that draw from emotional experience? I think so. And I think, I think draw from emotional experience and draw from empathy. You know, you are not going to experience everything that every character that you write about has experienced, but you can make empathetic guesses and you can say like, if I was in this experience, how might I feel? And of course, you know, there's sometimes that you want to maybe, if you're writing about an experience that's so outside your, like your own, you might want to talk to somebody who shares that experience or read oral histories and stuff like that. But at a certain point, you're going to, your empathy is going to kick in. You're going to say like, oh, I get it. You were feeling hopeless or you were feeling lost. Um, I felt that way. I understand that. And I can write from that. So yeah, emotional, emotional truth, I think is, is paramount. Um, and, and that comes from empathy and from knowing yourself emotionally, you know, and, I, and that you'll change. You change as a writer, you change as a person. And I think I, one of my things I try and do, I, you know, as I, I looked at my like body of writing, over the course of like, you know, I'm 41 now and I've looked at, you know, the last 20 years of writing and I'm like, hmm, 20 years ago, I was writing about a lot of 20 year olds. And now all of a sudden everybody's 40 in my stuff. And so I challenged I'm like, okay. And so I like looked around and I was like, okay, Eric, you gotta, like, sometimes you can, you can dive into the sort of like, what are people my age thinking? But then you also have to sort of continue to expand in, in other directions, which is how we get this young adult novel about two 16 year olds living in the present, uh, tweeting or whatever, whatever, however uh, people communicate uh, as teens. Thank you for that wonderful response. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say, cause when I write or like, for example, when I was working on college essays earlier this year, it felt almost wrong to be writing mm. my essays for some reason, because I felt like I didn't have the experience mm. needed to write an authentic, essay yeah I feel like I used authentic a lot today anyway um so like when I was writing college essays or whenever I try to write something that's centered central to my character it doesn't feel like it's earned and so mm. you saying that it gives me a lot of comfort as someone who's wanting to be in that writing field and someone who's interested in that job that slash career so um, I wanted to ask, um, out of all the different types of writing you did, screen screenwriting, playwriting, novel writing, et cetera, et cetera, which ones do you think are the hardest to write and which ones do you think are the easiest to write? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Right now, screenwriting is very hard for me. It is 
there's so much economy required in it. Like, you, you know, you watch a TV show you're, and you're like, oh, they're talking the whole time, but they're talking so much, like the lines are so much shorter. There's so much less dialogue. Um, and it's like, I'm just very, I don't know if you've noticed, but the past, you know, however long we've been talking, about 20, 30 minutes, I love to talk. And so, you know, there, you know, I, I type and I'm like, we're 15 minutes into the episode and people are still introducing themselves. Like, I'm like, you gotta, you gotta get your life together, Eric. So that's very hard. It's very hard to sort of hit the technical requirements. It is very much using the left side of your brain sometimes. Um, and it's really a, a very specific language. So that's really hard. Um, I think easiest, I found novel writing a real joy. It sort of just poured out of me. And I don't want to say, you know, I'm, I'm I'm writing, I'm writing another book of, of um, comedic essays um, this summer. And then after that, I'm starting on a, another novel. And I'm like nervous that like this one was fun. And then the next one will be like, I've made a huge mistake. So I don't know. We'll see. But I, yeah, I, I really did enjoy novel writing. I, it, got, it was like hanging out with friends. I never found myself lost. I get stuck every once in a while, but I did a little plotting. You know, I did plotting in advance. And so I sort of knew where I was going to go. And if I was like in the middle of the scene and I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what to say next. I challenged myself to like, I was like, I, I'd, be, I'd, I'd say, oh, you're, you're bored. Um, so write something that's uh, exciting to you. And so any, like anytime I got myself a little bit bored, I'd delete a paragraph or two and say like, great, let's, what, what else can happen right now? And that's, you know, uh, or what, who, who can say something that like will really make me re-engage? And I found that really fun um, because I want to enjoy myself and I want readers to enjoy themselves. And I want to write books that feel like hanging out with a friend. And so, and so for me, it was just about keeping the ball in the air. So I'm trying to take that energy and put it into the television as well. We shall see. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, all right, Mikhail, you have the next one. All right, so here we go. This is not very related to uh, everything else we've seen today, but uh, what chocolate do you eat first? If you are given a whole box, uh, do you eat the, the fruity flavor? Do you eat the uh, chocolate flavor? Which, which one are you going to eat? Thank you for that question, Mikhail. Uh, I, was, I was wondering when you were going to speak up. I, uh, I go for the fruity flavor. I, like, if you know, I read a little back, I'm allergic to, to tree nuts, and so I have to like, avoid um, certain, certain chocolates, but if there's one that's like filled with like raspberry jam or strawberries or like a cherry, I'm all, I'm all about it. Um, I, uh, I started sending as like, thank you gifts for like people who write blurbs for the back of my book or whatever. I've started sending boxes of chocolate, um, which feels very sort of like, you are bribing people. Yes. Well, no, after they Scandalous. do it, no, after they do it, after it's all said and done, uh, but yes, I will. All right, I'll see you in court too. Um, but no, but as a thank you gift, and um, I get very excited. I'm like, every other people are going to get chocolate, and they get to like, uh, you know. And then of course I like, I get jealous. So then I order myself a box of chocolate. It's a real, real mess. It's a real mess over um, here. Thoughts on citrus chocolate? Now, see, I, I'm. It's not always what I go to, but I have had almost always good experiences with like orange chocolate like the orange slices covered in chocolate or even just sort of like a oh a lemon curd inside of a chocolate wowie zowie wowie you know truly amazing a little yuzu and chocolate now we're cooking with grease you know it's like 
some good stuff, some really great stuff. It's funny, I'm sitting here, I, 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 like this doesn't really matter, but I like, so I'm, I'm in a hotel and like the front desk like left these little chocolates on my like desk here and these macaroons um, and they're in a bed. It looks like, like what I thought it was just like wood chips or something, which I thought was weird, but it's like crushed up chocolate in this little dish. So I want, like, you know, I want to eat it. They left a little note that's like, have a great stay. But this is, this is all unwrapped. Like, where did this chocolate come from? This is how a fairy tale starts, you know, or like a dayline investigation. So I can't you don't eat this question chocolate. It. You just no, eat I, it. I will not. I will not. I'm not eating it. Um, and like this crushed chocolate, this is so cuckoo. It's so strange to me. I wish your listeners could see it. It's just like literally a bed of crushed up chocolate. What is, the, what is, what is to become of this? I don't know. So I'm just going to sit here. They're concerned about the mysterious chocolate and um, send our regards. <laughs> well, R. Eric Thomas is the national best-selling author of Here For It or How to Save Your Soul in America Essays and the playwright of the heartfelt comedy Crying on Television, which premieres at the Everyman Theater in Baltimore May 31st. His new book, Kings of Beemore, comes out on May 31st, which can be found on the Penguin Random House website or your local bookstore. Our Eric Thomas, thanks so much for coming out tonight. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. All right, bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Ash Baker. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm an instructor and research specialist at Howard County Library System Central Branch. Howard County Library System is excited to host our Eric Thomas in person at our Elkage branch on Wednesday, June 15th at 6.30 p.m. As soon as I heard about the upcoming release of Kings of Beemore, I began highly anticipating it for several reasons. One, I love queer YA fiction, especially that which celebrates queer joy and friendship. Two, I've grown up in the Central Maryland area, and I was interested in reading contemporary YA set in and around Baltimore. And three, I enjoyed listening to our Eric speak in the past at that virtual MLA conference in which our Eric was in conversation with Nay. So when Nay and I ended up on the same team here at the library, it was a perfect match to have him as a potential guest speaker at the library. And we're thrilled that he agreed to visit us as well as being on the podcast today. So mark your calendars for June 15th, 6.30 p.m. at Howard County Library System, Elkridge Branch. do you celebrate Pride Month with media choices? Let's hear about favorite characters, books, TV shows, artists, and more. As someone whose favorite genre to read is fantasy, the webtoon Castle Swimmer by Wendy Lane Martin to me is the perfect mix of whimsical and groundbreaking. Launched on the Line Webtoon platform on September 8, 2018, the webcomic immediately brought attention from internet users worldwide because of its beautiful art style and social awareness. The plot follows two boys, one a merman named Kappa, a prophetical entity, and a shark named Siren, the prince of the shark kingdom. Though the two initially start off as captor and prisoner, the dynamic between them could make a reader think otherwise, with romantic implications being introduced within the first several chapters. Castle Swimmer is presented as a fantasy romance, yet the reason why it appeals to so many people is the level of normalcy that the author uses to approach queer love. Though in an otherworldly setting, the characters are grounded in reality, with various real-life issues, homophobia, pollution, mental health, or fishing being interwoven into the narrative. It's because of reasons like these that I highly recommend reading Castle Swimmer, a delightful tale for all.
You can't have a Pride Month book feature and not talk about the webcomic turned graphic novel turned Netflix sensation, Heartstopper. The description of the webcomic reads, Charlie, a highly strung, openly gay overthinker, and Nick, a cheerful, soft-hearted rugby player, meet at a British all-boys grammar school. Friendship blooms quickly, but could there be something more? This comic is very heartwarming and, well, heart-stopping. The characters are likable, the art style is very nice, and overall the plot is just perfect. But even while telling a lovey, uplifting story, the comic tackles societal issues as well, including eating disorders and body image. Originally a webcomic, then a graphic novel, the show has just been adapted into a TV show sensation. The New York Times described the show as, a faithful Netflix adaptation of a popular webcomic and graphic novel tells a heartwarming boy-meets-boy tale through live action and animation. All mediums of Heartstopper are amazing and feature LGBTQ youth in a wonderful and artistic way. You can find the Heartstopper webcomic online on Webtoon or Tumblr. The graphic novel can be found in the library catalog and bookstores near you. The TV show is on Netflix. You can find all the links in the description. Well, Heartstopper is about the growing relationship of two boys. The Magic Fish by Trang Lim Guoyan is about coming out. The Magic Fish is graphic novel about teen, a gay Vietnamese-American teen who struggles to find the words to come out to his immigrant parents. While their mother and son's childhoods are very different, there's one meaning that they both understand. Fairy tales. The fairy tale books teen reads to his mom are illustrated within the book itself. In fact, there are two plots within this book. There's the plot of Teen and his mom, and the plot of the fairy tales that Teen reads aloud. The book is beautiful, with both plots illustrating messages about love, loss, identity, and bringing families together. Not only is the story amazing, the graphics are absolutely stunning. The art style is very unique, with each story being illustrated in different color scheme. Teen's own story is colored in pink, while some of the fairy tales are covered in a deep purple or blue. Overall, this book is amazing and a heartwarming read. You can find the book in the HCLS catalog and your local bookstore, or with the link in the description. June is here, and you know what that means. Pride events! Check out the links in our show notes for a roundup of local and regional events all month long. In this special bonus segment, Mr. Thomas shares his thoughts on which movies and television shows he thinks have the best writing. All right. Um, before you go, I had one more question, but first of all, so this is, wasn't really related to our conversation, so I didn't mention it, but... What TV shows or movies do you think have the absolute best writing? Oh, that's really, oh gosh. I mean, like movies, uh, I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Charlie Kaufman in general has, is a really, really great writer. Um, what did I just see that I was like, this is incredible. Oh, every, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, just beautiful. You know, and the writing, it's funny because the dialogue wasn't like, oh, this is the best dialogue, but in terms of like concept and structure, just brilliant, really, really great. Um, in terms of TV, the things that people always say, and I think, I think I agree with this, is that like Breaking Bad and Mad Men um, are like two of the, the best series ever made. Sure, okay. Um, 
you know, I really love the writing on, um, I think The Good Place is a, a phenomenal, you know? Oh my God, that um, is such a good show. Isn't it great? It's really it great. It's so good. What else? What other, what other shows do I think have really, really great writing? Um, oh, Maisel, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel um, and Succession. I think have really just smart writing, really smart, uh, smart dialogue. I really listen for dialogue. Sometimes, you know, because TV is a machine and because you have to write it fairly quickly, sometimes dialogue's not great, you know? Um, and it's really just about like, oh, what happens uh, and, and how does it look? And so when I find shows that have great dialogue, I, I really latch onto them. So yeah, I think, I think those, those, I really plug into those. Thanks for listening to HokoCast. We hope our episode inspires you to read and watch everything by author R. Eric Thomas, to attend his upcoming Meet the Author event on June 15th, and to celebrate Pride Month. You can find out all the recommendations we discussed in the show notes of this episode. Make sure to check them out.